0: Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today...
1: Well, really what the inquiry is trying to do is identify what levers are available to uh, the state government to try and really potentially intervene in, in what we're seeing in the market at the moment.
0: Cost of living pressures are obvious in our trip to the supermarket by anybody around Australia but it's worse in South Australia at the moment. And South Australians Green member, Robert Sims, is going to put forward an inquiry into supermarket prices tomorrow in Parliament as Adelaide has recorded its highest jump in prices across the nation today. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, native forest logging in New South Wales came under scrutiny last year when Forestry Corporation New South Wales was forced to stop work by the EPA as their practices threatened the habits of endangered gliders in Talaganda National State Forest. This violation was one of eight recorded in 2023. Now Forestry Corporation looks to return to logging in the Flat Rock area of the Lansdowne Forest despite inadequate surveying the area they plan to work in. Community researchers have been the ones to go into the forest to determine the den trees of endangered gliders. Stephen Samaras asked Greens MP Sue Higginson why native forest logging has been able to continue.
2: Look, it's just we have a significantly flawed system at the moment, in our view, that is allowing... The industrial scale logging are some of our most important forested areas in New South Wales. We know that we're talking about the public forest estate. There are rules that Forestry Corporation is meant to comply with that are supposed to provide protections for threatened species. We know that there are many views that tell us those rules are failing threatened species, they're failing our forest ecosystems. And even when Forestry Corporation fails to comply with those lax laws, we see a slap on the wrist. They might be required to stop work for a short period of time and then they're back at it.
0: Why hasn't the EPA been able to put a stop to further unlawful logging and native forest logging?
2: The EPA does take some regulatory action. But what the current pattern seems to be is that it really is only in relation to when citizen scientists and community members go into particular logging operations, they find evidence that the Forestry Corporation is not applying the rules, such as what we saw in Talaganda State Forest when we saw... Forestry Corporation undertaking intensive industrial logging operations in accordance with a plan that hadn't identified any greater glider dentries, notwithstanding the presence of greater gliders. And we need to remember that when we find a greater glider dentry, we are required to exclude logging within a 50-metre radius and protect that tree plus the surrounding area Forestry Corporation is not undertaking those surveys, not locating those trees. Citizens go in, they locate these trees, they report these to the EPA, then the EPA may or may not take action.
3: Can the EPA step in to prevent damage in Flat Rock State Forest?
2: So what we know is that at Flat Rock, similar to Talaganda, the Greater Gliders, Forestry Corporation hadn't identified them. Community went in again, identified them. EPA came in and issued a stop work order. Um, That was extended, but that runs out today. So right now we don't know precisely what the fate of Flat Rock State Forest is and whether Forestry Corporation intends to go back in or whether the EPA is going to take further regulatory action around flat rob.
0: Why does Forestry Corporation continue to perpetuate practice unlawful logging and native forest logging? Are there no government safeguards or local council safeguards in place other than the ones that community researchers are doing?
2: Well, I mean, we are at a point where we know the rules and regulations around logging the public native forest estate are enabling the destruction and, dimin- and the diminishing values of those forests. So whether Forestry Corporation is playing by the rule book or it's continuing to breach the rules, what we know is that the logging is of an industrial scale and we know that the forest values are being lost on a scale that they're not able to be replaced. And so what we're seeing across the whole forest estate is a massive competition right now between the threatened species that are dependent on these forests, in other words, they can't and don't live anywhere else, and a timber industry that is hungry to make a profit on exactly the same trees. So we're literally, we've come to that very pointy edge of the management of our public native forest estate where right now every tree um, that is a hollow tree or a hollow bearing tree that our, some of our most threatened forest species depend on for their very survival are the same trees that the timber industry is looking for. And, and those future success trees, the trees that will be the succession plan to those older trees... Once, um, uh, as we look at forest health and long-term forest management. So the reality is right now that we know this logging is not sustainable. We know that these forests are so important for the future survival of the forest-dependent species. And we also know that these forests are fundamental in our challenge and our fight against the impacts of climate change.
0: New South Wales Greens MP, Sue Higginson, speaking there with Stephen Samaras. Hey there, I'm Hamish MacDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has announced a federal inquiry into competition in the supermarket sector, but South Australia also, after finding that their supermarket price rises are the highest in the nation, are looking to complete court inquiry of their own. Charitable organisations such as the South Australian Wing of Food Bank have seen a sharp rise in people accessing groceries as consumers are increasingly priced out of sourcing groceries at Australia's major supermarket chains. Georgia Hayway asks South Australian Greens member Robert Sims why now is the right time to launch an inquiry into supermarket prices?
1: Well, I think the cost of living crisis is impacting on everybody right across the community. You know, I've been involved with politics for a long time now and I've never seen so many South Australians that are doing it tough and that's one of the reasons why we want to have this inquiry so that we can get to the bottom of what's happening here. And one of the key terms of reference for the inquiry is actually the impact on a People on low incomes of, of these high food prices. Food Bank has reported here in South Australia there's been a 50% increase in the number of people that have been using their services over the last 12 months. So it's definitely something that's starting to bite, I think, out in the community.
4: Yes, I was just going to say organisations like Food Bank uh, have reported. Yeah, 57% jump in families seeking support, individuals. Are you hearing about other charities and other families turning to charity um, amongst the sharp increases in grocery prices?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely we are. Um, I think all support uh, organisations, community service organisations are noting a big increase in in people using their services. So, Again, that's one of the reasons why we want the Parliament to take a look at this.
4: A Coles spokesperson has given the excuse that supermarkets are not immune to increase costs of doing business with energy prices and the costs of logistics and packaging becoming more expensive. Do you think this is a legitimate argument for why prices are so high in our supermarkets?
1: Uh, I'm sure that... um Supermarkets are seeing an increase in some of their costs. That's the case with with most businesses at the moment. That said, um, Coles and Woolies have both made over a billion dollars profit last financial year. And at the same time, we've got South Australians are struggling to put food on the table. So whilst their costs might be going up, um, they're certainly putting a disproportionate impost on consumers. And I should say, of course, that's not um, a benefit that's being passed on to farmers uh, either, because they're being um, hammered at the moment too. So whilst the consumer is paying. Re- Record high price. Farmers are being gutted at the farm gates. So, really, I think it's a bit rich for the big supermarket change to be crying poor here.
4: Your inquiry is supported by fellow uh, crossbencher and independent Frank Pangallo, but uh, you're yet to secure backing from major parties. Why do you think this is?
1: still having discussions with the Labor and Liberal parties and working out where they might sit. So they don't have a firm position on on that yet. But uh, Mr Pangelo has certainly indicated he's, he's very interested in the inquiry and I'm certainly keen to have him as part of it.
4: You did mention farmers. One issue raised by the ACCC in a federal context is that when it comes to fresh produce, many farmers are concerned about the weak correlation between prices they receive for their produce and prices consumers pay at the checkout. What else do you have to say on the issue of of farmers not being compensated properly for uh, the goods that supermarkets are selling?
1: Well, I think it's a significant issue. Um, I mean, it's hardly fair that we've got consumers paying record prices, yet the benefit's not being passed on to um, farmers and producers, and that's one of the things I'd like to look at as part of the inquiry.
4: The federal government has tasked the ACCC with a 12-month review into pricing and competition in the supermarket sector, which the state government supports. How else do you think state and federal governments can work to combat uh, price hikes in supermarkets?
1: Well, I'd really like this inquiry to look at what avenues are available um, to uh, potentially regulate the sector or put them under a bit more pressure at a state level. And that's an issue that we're really going to be pushing on.
4: And I, sorry, I would like to ask as well. What does your proposed inquiry aim to achieve? What's to, if it does pass?
1: Well, really, what the inquiry is trying to do is identify what levers are available to uh, the state government to try and really potentially intervene in in what we're seeing in the market at the moment to end price gouging. So that's that's one of the things we'd really like to look at, but also to shine a bit of a light on the problem and to bring these big corporations under the microscope.
4: Do you think there is a way to combat price hikes without sort of being a toothless tiger? How can we attack um, price inflation without just kind of launching inquiries that identify the issue but really have Mm. no outcome?
1: Yeah, I I understand what you're saying, but... The reality is it is a complex issue and that's why an inquiry is actually a good mechanism to help manage this. That said, I want to see some concrete proposals come out of this and certainly that's what I'll be pushing if we can get the inquiry over the line.
0: South Australian Greens member Robert Sims speaking there with Georgia Hayway.
4: Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook
5: too.
0: Access to good water is a worldwide problem that all countries will need to address in this era of climate change. The Australasian Agriculture and Research Economics Society is having its 68th conference next week in Canberra, And one of the topics is the quality of water in many regions throughout Australia. In capital cities, water quality is good in Australia, but for many remote and regional areas, bore water and surface water quality is varying a great deal. I asked Professor Quentin Grafton from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University just how bad water quality is in regional Australia.
3: Well, we don't know for sure. Um, There's a data gap in a number of places, particularly in New South Wales, but what we do know is that uh, somewhere between 2 and possibly 4% of the Australians living in communities don't have access to good drinking water, as in water that would meet Australian drinking water quality guidelines. Are you know, these quite, like uh-huh.
0: settlements and towns and, and things near rivers or is this in it's further a combination.
3: out? It's a combination. There are some locations that are actually close to larger centres, um, but they have uh, different water sources. So there are communities that are – Uh, you know, within 30, 45 minutes drive of Canberra that don't have the water quality that Canberra residents have. Water quality in Canberra is very good, and that's because they're not on the Canberra system. They they have access to a different system. But uh, typically, a lot of the communities that don't have good drinking water quality are remote communities, but also includes a lot of rural communities. So so basically the the issue is typically not in the large or, or isn't in the large centres of Australia. Uh, they have good water sources. They uh, have a whole system of monitoring. They have a whole series of technical capacity to deliver good drinking water quality to people in those locations. That's not the case in uh, remote communities and in quite a number of rural communities. So it's, it's yes, a big it,
0: divide, isn't it? I mean, the capital cities, it's a big
3: divide, no capital cities it's are urban,
0: doing very well. They, they yeah, have to America's do well because the, yeah. there's a lot of people in them. Uh, but uh, yeah. but uh, throughout the rest of Australia, it could be very variable. And a lot of,
3: Absolutely.
0: And, and, and a lot is. of uh, country towns and so forth are uh, dependent upon underground water. And yep, that's, that's right. very variable too, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. So so they can be natural groundwater contamination, fluoride, arsenic, even uranium in you know, in a few communities in northern Australia. So that, that happens naturally, and so you have to make sure you, you, you've got to do something about that. You can't just let it be uh, as it is pumped out of the, the aquifer. You also have uh, problems with contamination, uh, sometimes chemicals, but also just uh, you know, fecal contamination as well. Uh, that can also uh, – typically that's from surface water. But it can actually happen in, in the shallow groundwater. Uh, but it's 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 not just the water source, which is really important. But it's also you know how that water's stored, and then how that water gets treated, and how that water gets distributed to households. It's all of the above.
0: And you and you really need to and have
3: found into those, mm-hmm.
0: and and you found that people actually are willing and and want to pay more for better quality of water.
3: So we interview people from all over Australia. So in Canberra, which has good drinking water quality, people in Canberra, people in Sydney, they're wanting to pay to make sure others who aren't as fortunate as them get good drinking water quality. So it's, it's, a, so it's not just people in the communities that don't have good drinking water quality who want to pay for it and get it. It's also those people who are not in those communities who are willing to pay to ensure that others get it.
0: We've already got water standards, is that right? Like, yes, yes. So it's a matter of then getting someone to monitor, uh, yes. and that and that is where you know the the nexus lies, I suppose. But then, as you've found, people are willing to pay a bit more for better water. So maybe the consumers themselves can help out here.
3: Yeah, that's that's right. So um, ultimately, uh, government has to step up. They've got the. Resources. There's a collective action issue. You know, individuals can't really do much as you beyond you know rain rain tanks uh, you know from and water from their roofs. So that you know it has to be a has to be a collective action solution here, and that's how we do it in Australia with you know regional and local and, and of course state and federal government. So that's that's where the solution lies, and it works, and it's them. Providing funds, but working with communities, working with the water uh, providers as well to actually monitor and, and improve, you know, the, the quality of the water. And the problem is in the rural and remote communities, you know, that that standard, that ability to deliver that, including monitoring, is just not the same as what you get in the big cities of Australia.
0: Professor Quentin Grafton from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University speaking with me there. <music> Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. 16,000 sheep and cattle remain stranded on a live export ship off the coast of Perth after being turned around by the Federal Government during their lengthy journey to the Middle East. This was due to safety concerns of attacks on the Red Sea by Houthi rebels and was initially proposed to be a reroute that would have turned a 17-day journey into one spanning well over two months. Now, the animals are back off the coast of Perth and have been on the ship for more than a month, enduring an almost 40-degree heat wave. The saga has attracted urgency for the government to follow through and make a final decision.
5: The government has been embroiled in a heated and lengthy saga involving almost 16,000 animals on live export ship MV Bahija. I asked John Hassel, President of Western Australia Farmers Federation, his thoughts on the developments.
6: Well, what I stand by is the department's handling of the, of the, of the uh, Bahija has been bloody disgraceful
5: there have been concerns for the appalling month-long duration of this saga. And the concerns lie not just with farmers, but with animal welfare activists as well. I spoke with Dr. Suzanne Fowler, Chief Science Officer of the RSPCA.
7: What we know is that uh, the experience of the animals is indeed ruling uh, and and definitely not in the best interest of their welfare. Uh, We are concerned about reports that some of the animals have died. We know, for instance, that sheep end up standing in their own waste for the duration of the journey, uh, and that's because those pens can't be cleaned out properly. And so they're standing in their own faeces. Um, that waste starts releasing ammonia, which can cause irritation to their eyes and throat. Um, they are at risk of multiple different diseases, and part of that is because they don't adapt well to the type of feed that is provided to them on the ships and so they can suffer from starvation and um, gastrointestinal disease as a result of not eating well. Uh, Add to that just the conditions on board the ship where you've got loud noises, different lighting, different people and different groups of animals that they're not used to, and the rocking and rolling of the ship. So in no way is this environment conducive to good welfare for the sheep or the cattle on board. And so the fact that they've been on the ship now for more than a month Uh, that stress would only be getting
5: worse and worse. Considering the concerning state of animal welfare on the ship, Fowler expressed relief in the government's recent decision to unload the animals. She says now it's up to the exporters.
7: We are very pleased that the Department of Agriculture has denied the request to re-export the animals and that we are now calling on the exporter and so that is an international company uh, to make a definitive decision now and, and offload those animals and make arrangements for them to be processed
5: on Australian shores. But Hassel is not so happy, stating there's a need for more responsibility from the government, that it's not just up to the exporter and that the exporter already had a contingency plan that should have been followed through by the government.
6: Well, I think the government's been pretty disgusting in terms of its lack of decision-making here. They're just saying, well, that's up to the exporter, that's up to the exporter. So as soon as the vessel was turned around in the Red Sea and headed towards Australia, under the, under the direction of the Department of Agriculture, as soon as that decision was made, then all of the costs should have been bought by the Department of Agriculture because they had a contingency plan in place, and which is something you have to do before the vessel can sail. Contingency plan was in place, and the Department of Agriculture chose to ignore that and send the ship back to Australia. Now, now the reality is, is they put a contingency plan in place in case something goes wrong, such as the security situation in the Red Sea, and they were capable of fulfilling that um, situation. And the federal department has uh, pulled the wool out from underneath, pulled the rug out from under their feet. The problem with that is, is that if you have a contingency plan, it's there to be fulfilled, not to be, um, not to be changed. It's it's almost like uh, well, they've moved the goalpost effectively, and it's almost like telling you you've got to have a seatbelt on when you've already got your seatbelt on.
5: With their lack of action, decision making, and responsibility, trust for the government is now in question.
6: But I think the problem with this decision is it's one of three things. As one is. Either there's ministerial intervention, and I I give Murray, what, a bit of higher credibility than that. Uh, The other one is that uh, there's a member of the department staff who's deliberately tried to make this not look good because they've got a personal bent against the live trade, or it's stupidity. And someone can decide who that is, not me. I'm going to guess it's probably the latter.
5: Amongst all the dilemma and indecision, one thing can be said for sure. People have been left with a bad taste in their mouth. And now they are awaiting the government's next step, one that must be done with urgency.
6: I think it, they've been paralysed by fear and indecision. It was nine days before the boat got back and they hadn't made a decision. Then another four days and they hadn't ma- made a decision. And then finally they made a decision that the best course of action was to you know, re-export. And now they've turned around and made the decision they're not going to export. And that's all pushing costs back onto the exporter, the unnecessary time on the sheep and cattle. So I think it's been a pretty appalling handling of a, of a situation. Uh, quite
5: disgusting, really.
0: Olivia Bowie there with that report. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcasts around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company.